1: Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Compassionate, caring, and cuddly. This is the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network.
0: Now, I like The Boss a lot, but when you've heard one Springsteen song, you've heard them both. It's just, uh, yeah, I like his music, but let change the lyrics. You've got the same song. Anyway, we continue on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network on this Sunday, 21st of January. And uh, my friend Scott Newark and I have talked on a number of occasions about the issues of kids with families you may have concerns about. And the Cotter kids have come up for discussion. Why did no government agency of any kind intervene with the Cotter family when it was fairly well known that there were, you know, there could be problems? After all, the father was one of the best friends of Osama bin Laden, and we know what happened. And a number of people have uh, sent me emails and ask the question about uh, Joshua Boyle and Caitlin Coleman's kids, given the unusual nature of, uh, of their life in the last five years. And for some of the kids, the only life they've known is their reason for authorities to take a look at whether those kids should stay with those parents. I mean, Boyle, Joshua Boyle's not at home now. He's behind bars. In a, in a, on, on a daily basis, children's protective services across this country interfere with parents who have really no reason to be interfered with because something may be said or something may be inferred or a, or a comment made and the next thing you know, there's a knock on the door or the doorbell rings and there's a children's aid society or a children's protective services agency member along with a police officer or two asking your questions about your kids. And that's a scary reality. We've talked to family lawyers about that. So there's uh, was a great deal to talk about. Scott Newark joins me on the Roy Green show on the Chorus Radio Network, former Alberta Crown prosecutor, executive officer of the Canadian Police Association, security advisor to the Canadian and Ontario governments, adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. The um, CV is lengthy. Scott, you've also written some some stories, some columns, and particularly on, on Joshua Boyle for American security magazines. How much interest is, is there in Boyle and the Boyle family south of the border?
1: Uh, it exists without uh, question. Uh, the same way that, uh, for example, the Americans have an interest about the, uh, the Catter family, or the first family of terrorism, as they call them. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's a real uh, interest in it. There's a recognition. Don't forget, Caitlin Coleman is an American. So there was that uh, aspect to it, and as well their, um, quotation marks, rescue was actually prompted by the American Special Forces discovering their location in, uh, in uh, Pakistan and saying to the Pakistani government, either you get this done or we will. So the story definitely got a t- uh, a t- attention in the United States. If you remember, uh, Boyle originally, bizarrely, refused to get on American rescue aircraft. That's right. He thought he'd be potentially sent to Guantanamo Bay. Because he'd previously been married to Omar Cotter's sister Zainab, so the Americans are keeping an eye on this uh, story as well.
0: So, when we talk about the the kids of somebody like Joshua yeah. Boyle and Caitlin Coleman, or previous to that, the the Cotter family, and you and I have had conversations. You have you have strong feelings about what should be at least considered.
1: Yeah, I um, I, I must admit this this aspect of uh, sort of family services and caring for children I first encountered as a prosecutor where we were involved in prosecutions of cases of guys usually on um... sexual offenses uh... and abuse of uh, uh, their spouse and that on you know uh, several occasions involved child services and looking to see if these kids were at risk there was i remember one case where the there was extensive uh, child pornography that was obtained as well too and so i became aware if you will of the interactions of the criminal justice system with also the proactive uh, mandate of child welfare to make sure that kids were being protected, that that was created as a legal, it's not just a legal obligation, it's a legal protection for children in our country. And with the Catter family, I admit, I'm somebody who was aware of the Catters before 9-11. i had been involved in some other stuff that, you know, uh, led me to that. And um, I hadn't, I, I don't think... I don't think I'd actually thought about it in the context of the kids, but when Omar Khadr was arrested and came into the news, and I started back in 2002, and I started looking at it, I had what what you described in your intro. I mean, exactly. We were fully aware of what these parents were up to and coming back and forth between uh, Canada, Scarborough, actually, specifically where they lived, and were raising money for uh, al-Qaeda and through various front groups. We were absolutely aware of what was going on. Uh, and yet our child welfare authorities did nothing. And one of the things that struck me about the entire uh, Cotter case was that, uh, you know, it, and not looking at it as a finger-pointing exercise, but rather as a lessons learned, those, if I think, uh, to this day, I still think if our child welfare authorities in Ontario had done their job, nobody would know who Omar Cotter was because he would have been removed from the circumstances of where he and his brothers and sisters were being inculcated into this Islamist death cult by their parents. And it never happened. And so when you start to look at some of these other cases, like the Boyle family and the bizarre circumstances in which these children are being quote, you know raised, um, I th- hope that is one aspect that's going to be looked at as well too, is to make sure that these children are actually protected. That was reinforced for me about a week ago when we had this bizarre story in Toronto of the, uh, the young uh, 11-year-old girl who claimed that uh, she had been uh, assaulted, you know, somebody trying to cut off her hijab, and she brought her 10-year-old brother in with her who was supposedly there, and they gave a media conference, and she was named and photographed and everything, and her mother appeared. The Toronto police were, of course, investigating, and then a couple of days later the Toronto police, to their, to their credit, came out and said, well, actually, no, the whole thing, you know, was a hoax. It didn't happen uh, well, okay, but like, why did it happen? And I certainly hope that somebody is at least looking into that to say, was this something that was orchestrated or planned? Were her parents involved in it? If that was not the case, and it's just something that she did herself, how did that happen? How is that possible in the circumstances where she's living as a family? There are questions that need to be asked because our laws are not just about obligations. They're also about protections. And children deserve that protection in Canadian society, in my view,
0: well, absolutely. And there's certainly enough um evidence of something going on, an eleven year old standing up and and delivering uh, what essentially seemed to be not very re- not well, maybe rehearsed, but she was very, very sure of herself. Yeah, so it seemed to me, and I didn't believe the story from the beginning, honestly, I did not. And I didn't talk about it on the air. Uh, well, you weren't as alone in you know.
1: that. Were you? There was a number of people yeah. who had skepticism right yeah. from yeah. No, no, but I got
0: criticized for not talking about it, and I understood where now, the criticism came that from. That is
1: one of the consequences. Yeah. One of the negative consequences. But let's take it my view of the current sort of theme of Islamophobia. I understand, but he's afraid So, of so
0: Scott, so is there the is there the commitment to the law, and is there the commitment to the protection of children to investigate? specifically investigate the Boyle situation. some of these kids have not lived in a in a, in a society like ours. They were born into um, into the terrorist group reality. And now they're living with this unusual father, and I don't know very much about the mother. But do you think that they would have the commitment to go and investigate and, if necessary, take custody of the children, or would they be concerned about, afraid of? Islamophobia labels, and then add to that the connection the Boyle clearly has with the Prime Minister.
1: Well, I uh, did a little bit of checking. Uh, I was pretty sure the outcome of this anyway, but uh, uh, in, in Ontario, it's the uh, Child and Family Services Act. They definitely have the lawful authority to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you may be right about the, uh, shall we say, political cor- correct hesitation that is growing, which, by the way, was exactly, if you go and do the research, on the uh, organization of Islamic Cooperation, who were the ones that came up with the idea of uh, this uh, Islamophobia ten years ago? It's to make people afraid to in any way challenge, question, or criticize uh, the uh, the tenets and practices of Islam. so why I, I made the comment about congratulating the Toronto Police because I know they've come under some criticism for just saying the investigation is ended, but um, good for them for actually going and you know checking things out and looking and seeing it what evidence there was, and then making the conclusion, and then publicly coming out and saying, look, this didn't happen. okay? Because I'm sure there was uh, you know, pressures internally on them just to look the other way and not actually make a statement about it, but they did. But having done that, doesn't that then raise questions exactly as you just mentioned? So where are the other agencies? Are they at least looking at this? No. Because they should be.
0: Because ultimately the purpose of the legislation is to protect kids.
1: Yes, and it's it's. Uh, I mean, I think it was probably originally written in the sense of, you know, from uh, physical harm or uh, incapabilities, but it does include from being subjected to improper influences.
0: Yeah, Scott. And if if I, Scott, if I were example, to open the phone lines,
1: were being raised say, Scotty, in a Ku Klux Klan environment.
0: If I open the phone lines right now, and I were to say, provide me with some examples of Children's Aid. Society or children's protection agencies across Canada, involving themselves in someone's life where they had no business involving themselves. My phone lines would be busy for three hours. Yeah, so, I, so I, you look at you're, the, uh, you're probably right. So the so the family pro- the family in the suburbs they're eligible for intervention, and if if there's a problem, rightly so. But Boyle, I think would they'll they'll treat the situation with kid gloves because they're afraid of being called Islamophobes and they're afraid of maybe the Trudeau connection.
1: Um, and, you know, look, the, the whole point about this is that uh, Might as well be honest we have about to it. react to changing situations. And this reality um, of this kind of uh, ideological indoctrination, including in families, is a new reality. We have to deal with it. Yep. And we have to have our publicly public agencies step up and do their job.
0: Otherwise, there'll be no it's credibility not- and no belief in it. There'll be no credibility and there'll be no belief in the system. If they don't. Hey, when we come back, let's talk about the return to Canada Uh, of a professor who was uh, accused of being a terrorist by France and spent three years in prison in France. And then I'd like you to share with us what your thoughts are as a prosecutor, former prosecutor, as to what's likely to happen with Joshua Boyle in this ongoing push-shove, push-shove, push-shove of what he's possibly going to be held accountable for and whether there's any prison time or whether... It's going to be a deal for Joshua. We'll come back with Scott York on The Green Show. Stay with us. He's
1: like a superhero without the costume. This is The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network.
0: We're back with Scott Newark, former Alberta Crown prosecutor and security advisor to the Canadian and Ontario governments, adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. And uh, let's talk about this professor, Canadian professor, Hassan Diab, who was um, linked by French prosecutors to a synagogue bombing in 1980. Three people were killed. Uh, he was extradited to France, where he's been in prison for three years. Scott, as you know, there was a tugging back and forth between judges and prosecutors in France. Judges ordered him released. Prosecutors wanted him held. There is apparently evidence that uh, he was in Beirut at the time of the uh, the uh, synagogue bombing, and he was taking university exams, but he's back in Canada. Where's this going?
1: Um His lawyers have uh, actually called for, as has Professor Diab, a review of our entire extradition act procedure, uh, because uh, the case itself, the evidence was uh, not particularly strong in the first instance, and um, even more, the process that is used in France is sufficiently different from our system. That it ended up that he was being extradited back to France, not for prosecution but for investigation, and so I think quite fairly, actually, uh, there is a call from the uh, uh, from the, the professor plus uh, his lawyer that the entire process be reviewed mm-hmm. uh, here in Canada. What's a little bit different about this one is that this is not as is the normal case where it's just you know an executive action by the minister in doing something. This decision to extradite him was made by, according to our laws, by a superior court judge. It was reviewed by the Ontario Court of Appeal. I just read the judgment uh, this morning. Very, very detailed judgment. Uh, And the Supreme Court of Canada refused to even consider his appeal from from the Ontario Court of Appeal ruling. So, in other words... Uh, he had all of the opportunity and made the arguments that the process was unfair, unconstitutional, everything else, and it was all rejected by Canadian courts. Mm-hmm. So that's going to add a wrinkle to the uh, process where we're going to step back and take a look at and say, okay, maybe we should rethink how we do this. But as I've followed the case and I've looked at this one in, in particular, uh, I do agree that I think it's probably a good idea that we do that. Uh, especially because in today's world, if you think about it, Roy, uh, there may be requests for extradition of Canadians from countries like Syria and Iraq and Turkey, and we better make sure that the process that we have in place that would allow that is going to be something that recognizes, you know, shall we say, the the potential deficiencies in the available evidence or in the fairness of the process of the country that's making the extradition request and at the same time is appropriately balancing sending people back to face legitimate prosecution but also uh, protecting Canadian rights.
0: There's some real concern when the man has a passport that is stamped and indicates uh, clearly that he was in Beirut when the attack on the synagogue took place and uh, he has university records which also corroborate that he was in Beirut issue. I think it's
1: actually a little more complicated than that, because mm. I don't want to delve into all of the evidence, but the point was that at the end of the day, on repeated occasions, the French courts that had authorized the request and certified the request, I think it was eight separate times, said he should be released, and the
0: right. it was prosecution eight times.
1: service kept appealing it. Yeah. So there obviously was not the solid basis in it. it I think it's a. No, I was
0: talking about when he was released, it have when he was extradited all. from Canada. Correct. Well, they I should, should, they have should, have would, should have looked at that. That evidence should have precluded that. Hey, let me ask you quickly, because we have about a minute and a half. Boyle is going to be in court on Friday, this coming Friday. What do you suspect is going to happen?
1: So you're asking me to speculate? I am. I see. Um, well... You know, supposedly this is just to have his lawyers and the prosecution work out a bail uh, uh, release. That's kind of strange. You know, it's taken virtually a month. He hasn't even entered a plea yet, right? That's just a little bit odd. The uh, prosecutor and me, I must admit, I kind of look at this and wonder if they aren't uh, negotiating something larger than just bail conditions. And in fact, whether or not it's going to, we're going to see that there's the beginning of a process at least of where there's a plea bargain uh, that is agreed to and you know guilty pleas are entered on some charges and they you know they've worked out what some of the resolutions are going to be and if there's going to be pre-sentence reports it just seems strange to me that this has gone on uh, as long as it has without him even entering a plea
0: well they better be able to convince the canadian people that what they're doing is transparent and correct according uh, to the law. Focus on
1: the word transparent. Okay, because yes, sir. so far all these goofy publication bans, okay, that are supposedly in place to protect victims, all too often they frequently end up simply protecting the person that's accused. And I think I agree with you. I think for some of the stuff we talked about earlier. You know, Canadians have the right to know essentially what's gone on here. Yeah. And that this is an, the, whatever it is that is the ultimate resolution is appropriate in the public
0: interest. Mr. Newark, thank you for the time. Okay, Roy. As always, all the best. Scott Newark on The Green Show, and this is the Chorus Radio Network.